Blog Talk Radio. The Keys Network is proud to present Disaster Awareness for Community Preparedness with your host, Brother Rudolph Muhammad. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, friends, supporters, and anyone else that may be listening. You are listening to Blog Talk Radio. This is The Keys 107, Disaster Awareness for Community Preparedness. And I am your host, Brother Rudolph Mohammed. Woo! This has been a week. But I'm going to begin, as usual, by starting with much praise and thanks to the almighty, all-wise creator for allowing me another expression of kindness by giving me time in his wonderful creation called universe. I know it's not based on any good or meritous work that I have done that I'm still sitting here, but solely based off of the grace and mercy of the all-wise, almighty creator. And so for that, I thank him. I also thank him for life, health, and strength and the ability to function every day when I wake up and have the use of all of my faculties. This is a major thing that we sometimes take for granted until it's gone. Have you ever had a, been in a situation where you could not function properly um, when you got ready to do what you needed to do? Well, what I want you to think about is I want you to think about the fact that um, just tying your shoes, getting up, brushing your teeth, brushing your hair, dressing yourself, being able to think your way through your activities of daily living is a blessing within itself. All of that is a reason to be thankful to the Creator because it didn't have to happen. Somewhere on this planet, somewhere in this borough, in this city, in this state, in the United States, someone laid down last night and went to bed and did not get up today with the ability to do all the things that I'm talking about. Someone who has, had, who has normally functioned all of their life had a stroke and is now without the use of certain faculties. So this is a major thing that I'm talking about. This is not just one of those um, haphazard things that you could just blow off. I mean, you can if you choose to, but the wise and the proof man, the intelligent man, would 
not just blow it off. They would make sure that they take the time to give thanks because it's worthy, it's necessary, and it's humbling and shows appreciation. So with that being said, I further pray that you and your family have not suffered any major catastrophes over this last week. And if so, I pray that you had the ability to step back, take a breath, debrief, and realize what's really important. There have been quite a few murders over this last week, at least here where I am. Some made the news, some did not make the news. That's a an everyday occasion here. And so because of that, again, that's a reason to be thankful. So I just want you to understand that every day above ground is a blessed day. It's another day to solve a problem, and it's another day to try and get it right. Well, this week we have a wonderful show. I mean, we always have a wonderful show. But um, this week will be a continuation of last week's show. And this week we're going to go into first aid. Last week we covered choking or the choking procedure as well as um, uh, CPR, cardiopulmonary resuscitation, or the ability to restart the heart of an individual who, for some particular reason, their heart has stopped. Well, we talked about it, and I gave you certain information, and if you did your homework, you went online and researched or reached out to someone in your community and got more information on how to do CPR, when to do CPR, and why would you be doing CPR. We talked about the anatomy of the airway, the upper airway versus the lower airway. And when a person is choking, what that actually means, where the um, obstruction could lie and how you could dislodge that obstruction in an adult, a child, and an infant. And, again, this week we're going to go into 
first aid procedures for major conditions. But before we get into that, we are going to deal with history and taking a moment to spotlight someone who has made a major contribution to society and they are worth being spotlighted because some people may know about them and some people may not know about them. So this week, the person that we are dealing with is Marion White Edelman. Born June 6, 1939 in Bennettsville, South Carolina, she attended Spelman College in Atlanta, Georgia in 1960 and Yale University Law School in 1963. After Yale, she began registering African Americans for voting in Mississippi. Then she moved to New York City where she became an attorney for the Legal Defense and Education Fund. And this was a branch of the NAACP, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. In 1964, Ms. Wright passed her bar exam in Mississippi, becoming the first African-American to do so. Immediately after, she began to fight for the funding of a Head Start program. And from 1964 to 1968, Marion was the director of the Legal Defense and Education Fund in Jackson, Mississippi. She withdrew from that office when she moved to Washington, D.C. in 1968. While in Washington, D.C., Ms. Wright started a public interest firm called the Washington Project of the Southern Center for Public Policy. She then became the director at Harvard University's Center for Law and Education from 1971 to 1973. In 1973, Marion created the Children's Defense Fund in Washington, D.C. and became its president. Between 1974 and 1995, she published many books that include Children Out of School in America, a report in 1974, Portrait of Equality, Black and White Children in America in 1980. The Measure of Success, a Letter to My Children and Yours, 1982. Families in Peril, an Agenda for Social Change, 1987. Guide My Feet. Meditations and Prayers on Loving and Working for Children, 1995. Marion received the MacArthur Foundation Fellowship Award in 1985. Lastly, she created Stand for Children, a foundation like the Children's Defense Fund. This is a moment in history, and this is Marion Right, Edelman, truly, truly a hero 
for humanity. When you get a chance, look her up and see all of the many accomplishments that she has made, the things she has contributed to and still does. And again, she is just one of many unsung heroes for humanity here in the United States of America. Again, Marion Wright Edelman. All right. The call-in number is 213-943-3618. That's 213-943-3618. Press the number one so that you can speak directly to the host if you have a question, comment, or concerns and want to air them and speak to your family. Now let's just go through some news first and information, and then we will get into the first aid. This is giving you a chance to get your pens and paper ready because there will be a lot of information for you to copy. First, the FEMA Congressional Advisory Board FEMA seeks applicants for Youth Preparedness Council. Now, what, are, what, what am I talking about? FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Act, uh, Associate Act. But that organization, you're all familiar with FEMA. You know what it is. They do. Well, they are looking for youth to step up to the plate so that they can learn what they need to learn and they can train their peers. Why is that so important? One, it gives the youth an opportunity to really make a difference in their community. It gives the youth an opportunity to get a wealth of experience and knowledge quickly in an arena that has been all but cut off to them. It helps us to train a cadre of people who we say are our future anyway, well, gets them an early jump on learning how to do and what to do with disaster strikes. So that's what's so important about this. FEMA Congressional Advisory. FEMA seeks applicants for Youth Preparedness Council, March 22, 2013. The U.S. Department of Homeland Security's Federal Emergency Management Agency is seeking nomination for participants in the agency's Youth Preparedness Council, YPC. The Youth Preparedness Council provides an opportunity for young leaders to serve as a member of a distinguished national council. 
to complete a youth preparedness project of their choosing to learn about youth disaster preparedness from the leadership at FEMA and other national organizations dedicated to youth preparedness to voice their opinions, exercises, and share initiative ideas and solutions and to participate in the Youth Preparedness Council Summit, where the council meets with emergency management leadership to discuss steps to strengthen the nation's resilience against all types of disasters. So again, FEMA is looking for youth to join the Preparedness Council, and what you need to do is go online to FEMA and type in Youth Preparedness Council, and you'll get the application and the information on what needs to be done, how you can make your nominations, etc. Every church, every house of worship, every fraternal organization should do this and recommend at least two youth from among them to be a part of this council in order to get information for themselves, but also in order to plug these youth into the system so that they can begin to learn the inner workings of the system, they can lend their voices to the system and bring the technology as well as the fresh perspectives that they have. That's just my suggestion to all of you. The next thing is, if you go to landing, L-A-N-D-I-N-G, dot news, N-E-W-S, Inc, I-N-C, dot com. That's landing, dot news, Inc, dot com. If you go to that website and then you type in, if Long Island College Hospital closes, you will get a news story that was done um, about a week or two ago. But it centers around the closing of Long Island College Hospital in the Brooklyn Heights section of Brooklyn. Now, for those residents that are native to Brooklyn, you know that once you're downtown Brooklyn and once you pass Brooklyn Hospital and LIU, Long Island University, Juniors, once you pass that going further downtown, the only hospital down there is Long Island College Hospital, and it services the Brooklyn Heights, Cobble Hill, Red Hook sections of Brooklyn. To remove that hospital leaves a gaping hole in the downtown Brooklyn sector and it increases the response time, and it re- increases the time to get to a hospital 
dramatically because now you're talking about having to go either to Brooklyn Hospital, to Methodist Hospital on 7th and 7th Avenue and 7th Street, or going to Lutheran Hospital, I think that's like 55th and 2nd, or going across the, trying to get across the Brooklyn Bridge or the Manhattan Bridge and then going to Bellevue Hospital. That may not seem like much to you, but to a person who needs an emergency room or an operating room and needs to be stabilized, those seconds, which turn into minutes, and with traffic the way it is, can turn into more than 10 to 20 minutes, those can be crucial minutes in the life of someone's loved one. So you need to stay abreast of this thing, people, and um, don't be silent about it because, again, it's Long Island College Hospital tomorrow, today, and it's the hospital near you tomorrow. And where this idea comes from, I don't know. And listen, I realize that the city is in a crisis I mean, the whole world is in a crisis. I realize that there are major, major financial issues that are going on, and with an institution like a hospital, it probably is almost nearly impossible to keep it in the block because there are so many variables uh, involved. But getting away from the capitalist thinking and moving over to the humanitarian thinking, what is more valuable than someone's life? That's just a question for you to think about and answer. And if you were told that you were losing your life, what would you give for your life or the life of your child, or your mother, or your significant other that hangs in the balance, how much would you ransom to save their life? Again, that's a rhetorical question, and that's something only you can answer. Again, you are listening to Disaster Awareness for Community Preparedness, and I'm your host, Brother Rudolph Muhammad. And this is Blog Talk Radio, 213-943-3618, and press the number 1 so that you can talk live, speak, uh, be heard, and get your point of view across. All right, let's switch now, switch gears, and let's move on. I said we were going to deal with news. Right now. So let's deal with some more newsworthy events. In local news, which is not just local news, it's also um, international news, because the Bedford Stuyvesant Volunteer Ambulance Corps is currently training people in 
the country of Haiti to be self-sufficient and to be emergency medical responders in their country. And in doing that, what we're doing is we're trying to empower grassroots people to um, take uh, um, um, ownership of where they are in society, of where they are geographically, and of where they are morally and ethically, and to do something about their situation rather than complain about it. So in saying that, this Saturday, the first Saturday of every month from 1 p.m. to 3 p.m., is the general membership meeting of the Bedford-Stuyvesant Volunteer Ambulance Corps, a.k.a. Save-A-Life Rescue Squad. And that will be held at the EMS Academy on the corner of Marcus Garvey Boulevard and Green, the color green with the E on it, Green Avenue, in the borough of Brooklyn, in the city of Brooklyn, in the state of New York, in these United States. So again, Saturday from 1 p.m. to 3 p.m., the general membership meeting of the Bethesda-Stuyvesant Volunteer Ambulance Corps. Put it on your calendar, mark it down, save the date, call somebody, tweet somebody, Facebook somebody, email somebody, text message somebody, Everybody should have a representative here in order to be a part of the organization and to help us reach out to every community where not just people of color live, but in every community where human beings live. Because we are the people's EMS. On that note, we're also um, gearing up to possibly get ready to start with our EMT classes again. Um, tentative date is around June, June 1st. You know, again, it's a paperwork process. It's a legal um, situation that we are engulfed in, and so we have to actually wait on a letter from the New York State Department of Health that tells us we can resume teaching again. We're all very prayerful that it will come any day now, and once we get it, then we have to submit a date to them and give them 30 days notice that we want to start a class, but then we will be ready to start another EMT class. So you'll know so you'll know 100 
and I think it was 89, either 189 or 184, people went to the New York State Emergency Medical Technician exam in January, sponsored by the Bepicitis and Volunteer Ambulance Corps, and all but seven of them passed their exam. That's a 96.24 percentile or passing percentage. I think that those men and women over at the Breakfast Service and Volunteer Ambulance Corps deserve a round of applause for their, yes, yes, give them a round of applause. Yes, they deserve a round of applause for weathering the storms that come up on a daily basis there and still being able to focus enough on the issue and the goal, which is to educate people with the knowledge necessary to become emergency medical technicians and move from where they are right now into an area of getting a paying job and being able to provide for themselves and their families. That is the second goal of the organization. The first goal of the organization is to save lives of those that are sick or injured in the confines of the 79 and 81st precinct in the Bedford-Stuyvesant community. So again, kudos to those men and women over at the Bedstuy Volunteer Ambulance Corps who on a daily basis show up to ensure that an ambulance will be available when 911 is called by the residents of that community and they take the um, initiative to teach and train anyone who is willing to learn how to save a life and how to preserve life. Contact them at 718-453-4617. That's 718-453-4617. That is, if you want to email them, email them at bsvac at aol.com. That's B as in boy, S like Sam, V as in Victor, A like in Apple, C as in Charlie, bsvac at aol.com. Email them. Call them, stop by, um, do what you can to help ensure that that program stays viable in the community. Because where else are people who need a second chance being given a second chance? 
at little or no cost to to themselves. Alrighty then. So now, let's uh, see what else uh, are we going to talk about right now. Okay, let me see, let me see, let me see. Hmm. What are we going to talk about? Now we want to talk about, okay, we spoke about the EMT course starting back up again. We spoke about the Bed-Stuy Volunteer Ambulance Corps and the work they're doing. We spoke about FEMA and its desire to encourage and solicit youth participation in preparedness, in the Preparedness Council. What is on your mind that you would like to speak about? Give us a call, again, at 213-943-3600. One eight. That's two one three nine four three three six one eight, and press the number one, and that will bring you into the uh, chat or into the live studio, so that you can speak on what it is you want to speak on. Now, let us move into the next phase of our program for the day. I'm expecting a guest to come by before we get off of the air. And um, if if he does not come by this week, then I will... um, petition to get him on the air in the weeks to come. He is a gentleman who has a wealth of knowledge about health care in the community, what is needed, and what should and can be done in our current state of affairs. Oh, while I'm on, while I'm talking to you, I had a I got a call which really surprised me because it was about ten thirty at night, and the phone rang at the ambulance call, and I answered it, and it was Doctor Dees, Doctor Gerald Dees from Downstate Hospital. Some of you may remember him; he used to conduct a segment called House Calls. He also uh, used to do the McClary Report. But anyway, Dr. Gerald Dees, he called, and we talked for about a half hour on the phone, and it was great for me to be able to hear from him, someone who is one of my idols, because growing up here at the Ambulance Corps, 
he was very instrumental in helping us get the word out in the early years when Rocky and Joe first started. It seems like he was always here. He always was helping us to get news out, doing an interview so that we could get the word out to the community as to what we were doing. But more so than that, he was a practicing doctor that used to make house calls. And I remember that, and I wondered in in recent years what became of the doctors and the house calls. You know, what can be more educational and beneficial than a physician to meet a patient in their environment. See, it's one thing for a patient to go to a doctor's office and to tell the doctor what their signs and symptoms are and all of this. It's another thing for the healthcare provider to observe the patient in their own environment. You get so much more to the piece of the puzzle as to what you are actually dealing with. Not so much what they are saying or telling you, but you get to see full well what they're not telling you, which makes a major difference in their diagnosis and in their treatment and their rehabilitation. So again, we talked and he expressed his desire to change the uh, uh, status quo, so to speak. And what he wanted to do was somehow get his residents to do uh, shifts on the ambulance so that they would begin to appreciate and get to see these emergency calls as they originate in the pre-hospital setting. So we are working feverishly to try and get the legal kinks ironed out as well as the organizational kinks ironed out so that we can make this program a reality. Why? What will it do? Overnight, it will increase the quality of health care in that hospital, but also in that this community, because now the doctors that you see when you go into the hospital may also be the same doctors that respond on the 911 calls, and so they get to see and understand and appreciate what the pre-hospital care providers have to um, deal with before we can get the patient to them in the sterile environment of the hospital makes a big difference. So again, thanks to Dr. Dees for thinking out of the box and being at the forefront 
of trying to change the current status quo and the health care paradigm as we know it. Again, you are listening to Brother Rudolph Muhammad, and this is Disaster Awareness for Community Preparedness on the Keys 107 on Blog Talk Radio. Okay, now, let us go. You should have your pens and paper now, and now we will go into our first aid segment. The first thing that I want to deal with, of course, is how to control bleeding. When a person gets cut and blood, that red stuff, is either oozing out of them, running out of them, or shooting out of them. Either way you go, it must be contained, it must be stopped. Because if it is not stopped, then what will happen is they will bleed out. So, how do you stop bleeding in a person who is bleeding? Well, you have to somehow place a barrier over where the blood is coming from. And that barrier should be clean and sterile. But we know that not all the time will there be time or the ability to have something clean and sterile. So we will settle for just something that is clean and let them deal with the sterilization of it and fighting the infection in the hospital. Let's save the life first and worry about the disease later. Technically speaking, a dressing, A dressing goes over a wound and should be sterile. And a bandage holds a dressing in place, and it needs only to be cleaned. Again, that's technically speaking. Practically speaking, stop the bleeding any way that you can. And the first way that is recommended to attempt to stop any kind of bleeding is with direct pressure, meaning you directly put pressure on top of wherever the bleeding is coming from and squeeze. Why are you doing that? You're trying to give the body a chance to do what it normally should do, which is called clotting, C-L-O-T-T-I-N-G, clotting. 
what happens is when you place that whatever you're using on top of the blood, the bleeding, and hold pressure, it causes the network of capillaries to form almost like a mesh screen on top of where the bleeding is coming from to almost like a beaver making a dam to hold the blood back and keep it from going out. Now, in small, in small cuts or minor cuts, this can be achieved very easily. Regardless of how severe, all bleeding can be controlled. If left uncontrolled, bleeding will lead to shock or even death. Shock is a condition in which there is inadequate perfusion of body tissue. And when we say perfusion, we're talking about inadequate circulation of oxygen-rich blood getting to all of the tissue necessary. So again, the first step is to plug up the hole because the blood needs to clot, putting pressure directly on the wound, elevating that part of the body higher than the heart if possible to slow down or control the flow of blood going to it, all aids in clotting. If it is more severe than that and it's spurting and spurting and maybe it's just continuing to bleed, that first level of uh, containment that you put there or the first dressing, they get so saturated with blood that it does not hold it. And that's okay. But what you don't want to do, you do not want to rip that off and just start over again. You want to add a dressing onto it, but you don't want to You don't want to um, rip it off and then reintroduce air into the wound because whatever clotting has been done, you will rip it right out when you take that dressing off and you also expose that person to uh, more infection. 